Part Two of Wake Not the Dead. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Louise J. Bell. Part Two of Wake Not the Dead. Thus was the kind and benevolent Svanhilda driven an exile from those halls where she had presided with grace, from halls which were now newly decorated to receive another mistress. The day at length arrived, on which Walter, for the second time, conducted Brunhilde home as a newly made bride and he caused it to be reported among his domestics that his new consort had gained his affections by her extraordinary likeness to Brunhilda, their former mistress. How ineffably happy did he deem himself as he conducted his beloved once more into the chamber which had often witnessed their former joys, and which was now newly gilded and adorned in a most costly style. Among the other decorations were figures of angels, scattering roses, which served to support the purple draperies, whose ample folds o'ershadowed the nuptial couch. With what impatience did he await the hour that was to put him in possession of those beauties, for which he had already paid so high a price, but whose enjoyment was to cost him most dearly yet unfortunate walter reveling in bliss thou beholdest not the abyss that yawns beneath thy feet intoxicated with the luscious perfume of the flower thou hast plucked thou little deemest how deadly is the venom with which it is fraught although for a short season its potent fragrance bestows new energy on all thy feelings Happy, however, as Walter was now, his household were far from being equally so. The strange resemblance between their new lady and the deceased Brunhilde filled them with a secret dismay, an undefinable horror, for there was not a single difference of feature, of tone of voice, or of gesture. To add, too, to these mysterious circumstances, her female attendants discovered a particular mark on her back, exactly like one which Brunhilde had. A report was now soon circulated that their lady was no other than Brunhilde herself, who had been recalled to life by the power of necromancy. How truly horrible was the idea of living under the same roof with one who had been an inhabitant of the tomb, and of being obliged to attend upon her and acknowledge her as mistress. There was also in Brunhilde much to increase this aversion and favor their superstition. No ornaments of gold ever decked her person, all that others were wont to wear of this metal she had formed of silver 
no richly colored and sparkling jewels glittered upon her pearls alone lent their pale luster to adorn her bosom most carefully did she always avoid the cheerful light of the sun and was wont to spend the brightest days in the most retired and gloomy apartments only during the twilight of the commencing or declining day did she ever walk abroad but her favorite hour was when the phantom light of the moon bestowed on all objects a shadowy appearance and a sombre hue always too at the crowing of the cock an involuntary shudder was observed to seize her limbs imperious as before her death she quickly imposed her iron yoke on every one around her while she seemed even far more terrible than ever since a dread of some supernatural power attached to her appalled all who approached her a malignant withering glance seemed to shoot from her eye on the unhappy object of her wrath as if it would annihilate its victim in short those halls which in the time of svanhilda were the residence of cheerfulness and mirth now resembled an extensive desert tomb with fear imprinted on their pale countenances the domestics glided through the apartments of the castle and in this abode of terror the crowing of the cock caused the living to tremble as if they were the spirits of the departed for the sound always reminded them of their mysterious mistress there was no one but who shuddered at meeting her in a lonely place in the dusk of evening or by the light of the moon a circumstance that was deemed to be ominous of some evil so great was the apprehension of her female attendants they pined in continual disquietude and by degrees all quitted her in the course of time even others of the domestics fled for an insupportable horror had seized them the art of the sorcerer had indeed bestowed upon brunhilde an artificial life and due nourishment had continued to support the restored body yet this body was not able of itself to keep up the genial glow of vitality and to nourish the flame whence springs all the affections and passions whether of love or hate for death had forever destroyed and withered it all that brunhilde now possessed was a chilled existence colder than that of the snake it was nevertheless necessary that she should love and return with equal ardor the warm caresses of her spell enthralled husband to whose passion alone she was indebted for her renewed existence it was necessary that a magic draught should animate the dull current in her veins and awaken her to the glow of life and the flame of love a potion of abomination one not even to be named without a curse human blood 
imbibed whilst yet warm from the veins of youth this was the hellish drink for which she thirsted possessing no sympathy with the purer feelings of humanity deriving no enjoyment from aught that interests in life and occupies its varied hours her existence was a mere blank unless when in the arms of her paramour husband and therefore was it that she craved incessantly after the horrible draught it was even with the utmost effort that she could forbear sucking even the blood of walter himself reclined beside her whenever she beheld some innocent child whose lovely face denoted the exuberance of infantine health and vigor she would entice it by soothing words and fond caresses into her most secret apartment where lulling it to sleep in her arms she would suck from its bosom the warm purple tide of life nor were youths of either sex safe from her horrid attack having first breathed upon her unhappy victim who never failed immediately to seek into a lengthened sleep she would then in a similar manner drain his veins of the vital juice thus children youths and maidens quickly faded away as flowers gnawn by the cankering worm the fullness of their limbs disappeared a sallow line succeeded to the rosy freshness of their cheeks the liquid lustre of the eye was deadened even as the sparkling stream when arrested by the touch of frost and their locks became thin and gray as if already ravaged by the storm of life parents beheld with horror this desolating pestilence devouring their offspring nor could simple or charm potion or amulet avail aught against it the grave swallowed up one after the other or did the miserable victim survive he became cadaverous and wrinkled even in the very morn of existence parents observed with horror this devastating pestilence snatch away their offspring a pestilence which nor herb however potent nor charm nor holy taper nor exorcism could avert they either beheld their children sink one after the other into the grave or their youthful forms withered by the unholy vampire embrace of brunhilde assumed the decrepitude of sudden age at length strange surmises and reports began to prevail it was whispered that brunhilde herself was the cause of all these horrors although no one could pretend to tell in what manner she destroyed her victims since no marks of violence were discernible yet when young children confessed that she had frequently lulled them asleep in her arms and elder ones said that a sudden slumber had come upon them whenever she began to converse with them 
suspicion became converted into certainty, and those whose offspring had hitherto escaped unharmed quitted their hearths and home, all their little possessions, the dwellings of their fathers, and the inheritance of their children, in order to rescue from so horrible a fate those who were dearer to their simple affections than aught else the world could give. Thus daily did the castle assume a more desolate appearance. Daily did its environs become more deserted. None but a few aged, decrepit old women and gray-headed menials were to be seen remaining of the once numerous retinue. Such will, in the latter days of the earth, be the last generation of mortals, when childbearing shall have ceased, when youth shall no more be seen, nor any arise to replace those who shall await their fate in silence. Walter alone noticed not, or heeded not, the desolation around him. He apprehended not death, lapped as he was in a glowing elysium of love. Far more happy than formerly did he now seem in the possession of Brunhilde. All those caprices and frowns which had been wont to overcloud their former union had now entirely disappeared. She even seemed to dote on him with a warmth of passion that she had never exhibited even during the happy season of bridal love. For the flame of that youthful blood, of which she drained the veins of others, rioted in her own. At night, as soon as he closed his eyes, she would breathe on him till he sank into delicious dreams, from which he awoke only to experience more rapturous enjoyments. By day, she would continually discourse with him on the bliss experienced by happy spirits beyond the grave, assuring him that, as his affection had recalled her from the tomb, they were now irrevocably united. Thus fascinated by a continual spell, it was not possible that he should perceive what was taking place around him. Brunhilde, however, foresaw with savage grief that the source of her youthful ardor was daily decreasing, for in a short time there remained nothing gifted with youth, save Walter and his children, and these latter, she resolved, should be her next victims. On her first return to the castle, she had felt an aversion towards the offspring of another, and therefore abandoned them entirely to the attendants appointed by Svanhilda. Now, however, she began to pay considerable attention to them, and caused them to be frequently admitted into her presence. The aged nurses were filled with dread at perceiving these marks of regard from her towards their young charges, Yet dared they not to oppose the will of their terrible and imperious mistress. Soon did Brunhilde gain the affection of the children, 
who were too unsuspecting of guile to apprehend any danger from her. On the contrary, her caresses won them completely to her. Instead of ever checking their mirthful gambols, she would rather instruct them in new sports. Often, too, did she recite to them tales of such strange and wild interest as to exceed all the stories of their nurses. Were they wearied, either with play or with listening to her narratives, she would take them on her knees and lull them to slumber. Then did visions of the most surpassing magnificence attend their dreams. They would fancy themselves in some garden where flowers of every hue rose, in rows one above the other, from the humble violet to the tall sunflower, forming a particolored broidery of every hue, sloping upwards towards the golden clouds, where little angels whose wings sparkled with azure and gold descended to bring them delicious cakes or splendid jewels, or sung to them soothing melodious hymns. So delightful did these dreams in short time become to the children that they longed for nothing so eagerly as to slumber on Brunhilde's lap, for never did they else enjoy such visions of heavenly forms. They were the most anxious for that which was to prove their destruction. Yet do we not all aspire after that which conducts us to the grave, after the enjoyment of life? These innocents stretched out their arms to approaching death, because it assumed the mask of pleasure, for which they were lapped in these ecstatic slumbers, Brunhilde sucked the life-stream from their bosoms. On waking, indeed, they felt themselves faint and exhausted, yet did no pain nor any mark betray the cause. Shortly, however, did their strength entirely fail, even as the summer brook is gradually dried up. Their sports became less and less noisy. Their loud, frolicsome laughter was converted into a faint smile. The full tones of their voices died away into a mere whisper. Their attendants were filled with horror and despair, too well did they conjecture the horrible truth, yet dared not to impart their suspicions to Walter, who was so devotedly attached to his horrible partner. Death had already smote his prey. The children were but the mere shadows of their former selves, and even this shadow quickly disappeared. The anguished father deeply bemoaned their loss, for, notwithstanding his apparent neglect, he was strongly attached to them. Nor, until he had experienced their loss, was he aware that his love was so great. His affliction could not fail to excite the displeasure of Brunhilde. Why dost thou lament so fondly? said she for these little ones. 
what satisfaction could such unformed beings yield to thee unless thou wert still attached to their mother thy heart then is still hers or dost thou now regret her and them because thou art satiated with my fondness and weary of my endearments had these young ones grown up would they not have attached thee thy spirit and thy affections more closely to this earth of clay to this dust and have alienated thee from that sphere to which i who have already passed to the grave endeavour to raise thee say is thy spirit so heavy or thy love so weak or thy faith so hollow that the hope of being mine for ever is unable to touch thee thus did brunhilde express her indignation at her consort's grief and forbade him her presence the fear of offending her beyond forgiveness and his anxiety to appease her soon dried up his tears and he again abandoned himself to his fatal passion until approaching destruction at length awakened him from his delusion neither maiden nor youth was any longer to be seen either within the dreary walls of the castle or the adjoining territory all had disappeared for those whom the grave had not swallowed up had fled from the region of death who therefore now remained to quench the horrible thirst of the female vampire save walter himself and his death she dared to contemplate unmoved for that divine sentiment that unites two beings in one joy and one sorrow was unknown to her bosom was he in his tomb so was she free to search out other victims and glut herself with destruction until she herself should at the last day be consumed with the earth itself such is the fatal law to which the dead are subject when awoke by the arts of necromancy from the sleep of the grave she now began to fix her bloodthirsty lips on walter's breast when cast into a profound sleep by the odour of her violet breath he reclined beside her quite unconscious of his impending fate yet soon did his vital powers begin to decay and many a grey hair peeped through his raven locks with his strength his passion also declined and he now frequently left her in order to pass the whole day in the sports of the chase hoping thereby to regain his wonted vigour as he was reposing one day in a wood beneath the shade of an oak he perceived on the summit of a tree a bird of strange appearance and quite unknown to him but 
before he could take aim at it with his bow, it flew away into the clouds. At the same time, letting fall a rose-colored root, which dropped at Walter's feet, who immediately took it up, and, although he was well acquainted with almost every plant, he could not remember to have seen any at all resembling this. Its delightfully odoriferous scent induced him to try its flavor. But ten times more bitter than wormwood it was, even as gall in his mouth, upon which, impatient of the disappointment, he flung it away with violence. Had he, however, been aware of its miraculous quality, and that it acted as a counter-charm against the opiate perfume of Brunhilde's breath, he would have blessed it in spite of its bitterness. Thus do mortals often blindly cast away in displeasure the unsavory remedy that would otherwise work their weal. When Walter returned home in the evening, and laid him down to repose as usual by Brunhilde's side, the magic power of her breath produced no effect upon him, and for the first time during many months did he close his eyes in a natural slumber. Yet hardly had he fallen asleep, ere a pungent, smarting pain disturbed him from his dreams, and, opening his eyes, he discerned by the gloomy rays of a lamp that glimmered in the apartment what for some moments transfixed him quite aghast. For it was Brunhilda, drawing with her lips the warm blood from his bosom. The wild cry of horror which at length escaped him terrified Brunhilda, whose mouth was besmeared with the warm blood. Monster! exclaimed he, springing from the couch. Is it thus that you love me? Aye, even as the dead love, replied she with a malignant coldness. Creature of blood, continued Walter, the delusion which has so long blinded me is at an end. Thou art the fiend who hast destroyed my children, who hast murdered the offspring of my vassals. Raising herself upwards, and at the same time casting on him a glance that froze him to the spot with dread, she replied, It is not I who have murdered them. I was obliged to pamper myself with warm, youthful blood in order that I might satisfy thy furious desires. Thou art the murderer. These dreadful words summoned before Walter's terrified conscience the threatening shades of all those who had thus perished, while despair choked his voice. Why, continued she, in a tone that increased his horror, why dost thou make mouths at me like a puppet? 
thou who hadst the courage to love the dead, to take into thy bed one who had been sleeping in the grave, the bedfellow of the worm, who hast clasped in thy lustful arms the corruption of the tomb. Dost thou, unhallowed as thou art, now raise this hideous cry for the sacrifice of a few lives? They are but leaves swept from their branches by a storm. Come, chase these idiot fancies, and taste the bliss thou hast so dearly purchased. So saying, she extended her arms towards him. But this motion served only to increase his terror, and, exclaiming, Accursed being, he rushed out of the apartment. End of Part 2 of Wake Not the Dead Recording by Louise J. Bell Sebastopol, California